Welcome to The Megan Kelly Show, your home for open, honest, and provocative conversations. Hey everyone, I'm Megan Kelly. Welcome to The Megan Kelly Show. I'm going to start with this. Um, I wasn't planning on doing this. I just feel like I got to I got to tell you that something really sad happened in my family over the weekend. Um, my sister died. Uh, she was 58. Her name was Suzanne Crosley, and she died suddenly on Friday of a heart attack. Um, she hasn't been in very good health over the past couple of years. It's like sort of one problem after another. Uh, so it was sudden and it was it was unexpected. Um, and I went up, got news of it after the show and went right up and was there with my mom and my brother Paul and my my nephew Brian, one of her three kids, when she passed. So it was really hard. It was extremely emotional. My poor mom, as you all, as all moms and dads out there know, this is not the order in which this is supposed to happen. Um, so in any event, we were all together over the weekend. I'm going back up there after the show today, and she um, will have her funeral tomorrow. Thankfully, we already had tomorrow's show on tape, so I don't have to worry about that. And I I said to myself, do I come back? Do I do Monday show? Do I not do Monday show? And I really like for me, it's better to be here. Like it's maybe you can relate, but it's it's more cathartic to work. Like it gave me a couple of hours where I could take my mind off of it and um, do my job and talk about stuff that matters. It's not like what we talk about on the show doesn't matter. Not entirely every day, but most days. And I don't know, spend some time with my family who I've been away from for the past couple of days, my, you know, Doug and the three kids. Um, and I'll have more to say about my sister and her life later this week when I've had a chance to process it more. You know what I mean? Um, I saw that Ainsley Earhart's mom died over the weekend too. It's just a reminder to hug the people you love, right? How short and tenuous life is and how important it is to stay close to the people you love. You know, we can't all be perfect on that front, but we can make a little effort day by day just to, you know, shoot a text or return a call. I'm never very good at that. So it's a big reminder to me. Um, and just how fleeting things can be, right? And how we get ourselves so upset over shit that doesn't matter. This is one that does. And then you, of course, find out who your friends are and who the jerks are uh, in a situation like this, too. And I'm happy to say so many more friends than jerks. Um, my mom has a caregiver, you know, she's got a top couple of them. It's like a service that goes in and they, they make sure she's okay. And she, she lived with my sister. And, um, one of the women went to the hospital immediately. It was just my mom at the hospital alone at first. And, and she went with my mom and she sat there and I was on, on my way up. And, uh, she said, well, my husband is in a different hospital right now getting cancer treatment, but he's getting out today. So I'm just going to pop over there. I'm going to pick him up and then he's going to drive me back to this hospital so I can sit with your mom until you get there. I mean, what a good person, right? Like that's humanity. Like that's the true essence of humanity. Not all like the terrible people we talk about all the time on the show and in the news and who you encounter when you have road rage or they have it, you know, like that's that's what it is to be truly like a human being and to see another person's humanity and to step in at self-sacrifice to help another who you don't know that well. Um, 
And I'm thinking about all those people who helped my mom and helped my sister. And maybe you have them in your life and maybe they need a shout out today too. So between now and the next time I talk to you live, um, if you can spare a prayer from my mom and my sister's kids and my sister's one grandchild, I would sure appreciate it. Because they're hurting today. All right, let's do the news, okay? I'm a good compartmentalizer, and I know I can do the news and that the news will be good for me, and I hope it's good for the country, too. <laughs> um, let's talk about the midterms, because we are two weeks out now. Today, in just a bit, we're going to be joined by Senator Ted Cruz about the Republican effort to regain control of the House and of the Senate. I mean, that, a couple of weeks ago, didn't really seem like it was all that realistic. I mean, all the pollsters were saying there's really no way that Republicans are going to regain control of the Senate. Wow, what a difference a couple of weeks make. Um, he's also going to discuss the ways in which some on the left have weaponized our legal system. He's got a whole book about it. And he's, you know, Ted Cruz got his start as a lawyer. He was the solicitor general in the state of Texas. He's argued in front of the Supreme Court more than a dozen times. He's written, I think, 80 plus legal briefs uh, for the Supreme Court. So this guy, he clerked for Rehnquist, on and on it goes. So we'll talk to him and, um, and that'll be an interesting interview. First, though, we're going to talk about a topic that's probably impacted every single one of us. Do you have a, right now a friend or a neighbor or a loved one or, or an acquaintance who truly believes in what you know is a conspiracy theory? Maybe you're one of them. Right? Maybe you've got one you toyed with. You know, I'm not sure. In a world where some things we are told are conspiracy theories turn out to be true, right? Like that's, that's happened too. It's harder than ever to spot a false one, to really know what's real and what's not. Well, a new book takes a close look at why conspiracy theories gain traction, and how, if at all, you can extract yourself or someone you love out of one if you feel like that's necessary. The book is called Conspiracy, Why the Rational Believe the Irrational, and it's out this week. Its author is Michael Shermer. He's been on the show before, and he is the founding publisher of Skeptic Magazine. Michael Shermer, welcome back to the show. Nice to see you again, Megan. I'm uh, really sorry to hear about your loss. It's it's tough. There's no, no there's no good way to go through it, other than just to go through it. Um, you, know, you mentioned Skeptic Magazine. This is what it looks like. Uh, that woman right there was my partner who I founded the magazine with 30 years ago, and she just died um, last year. We put her on the back cover. Pat Lindsay. He mm. spent every day with somebody for 30 years, and then they're gone. And it's still, I, you know, it's a year now. And I still think, well, I got to call Pat. And then it's like, oh, I, I can't call her. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just in yeah. uh, a year now, it's over a year. It's like still. So I don't know. You just keep them in your, 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 your thoughts and your memories and pay tribute to them as best you can. And that's really all we can do here is just keep you know, going. You're so right. And that I thank you for saying that. And I'm sorry for your loss of your friend too. I, I was saying to my, she had two, she has two boys and a, and a daughter mm. and they're grown, you know, they're in their late twenties, early thirties now, but I was saying, and I really believe this, that you, you do, you do have a way of keeping them alive in a, in a meaningful way, not in the same way, mm -hmm. but like, I, I can hear my sister's voice. You know, I can, mm -hmm. I could, you know, my mom was rambling on about something over the weekend and she was going to, and, and I'm like, mom, you're kind of rambling. My sister would have been like, ma, shut up. <laughs> going on too long. You know, she was always mm -hmm. the blunt one. And, um, you know, it's, we laughed about her over the weekend and we shared in these great memories and it's almost like they're gone, but not all of them is gone. 
you know, if you love somebody and if you know them so well, like I'm sure you knew Pat so well of 30 years together, you can kind of mm-hmm. still tap into their advice and their thoughts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I've lost all my parents and I still consult with my mom in my mind about like, what should I do about this personal problem? What would my mom say? <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, you know, so they're still alive really in your, in your mind, in your memories, in your, in your life. Uh, uh, particularly p- people you spent a lot of time with that have had an influence. You know, it's like, uh, it's like the Jimmy Stewart film. It's a wonderful life. You know, they, it leaves an awful hole, but think of all the differences in people's lives that person made that would not have happened had they not been there. Mm-hmm. We were um, writing the obituary over the weekend and the family was and, and um, we were saying how she loved games. Like she, she loved all sorts mm-hmm. of fun board games, you know, and um, we were saying right now, one of the things was she was a fierce gin rummy player and, and she was eagle eyed for anybody who tried to palm the double five in dominoes. <laughs> <laughs> you know those people right? you gotta be you gotta right. be ever alert yeah um, and celebrate the life you know it's, of course mourning is natural and feeling bad is totally normal but don't forget to celebrate and and feel good about that person because you know a century from now we'll all be gone so yeah. all we can do is just try to make a difference every day and just remember you know today today could be it tomorrow could be it so i better enjoy every Every moment, every hour, every relationship, every time you have a contact with somebody you love or just friends and workmates, just remember, you know, that could be your last day. Yeah. With them. I don't know. It does have a way of like, not just softening you for a bit, you know, like you're just a little bit more generous towards your fellow humans and you're more loving. And, you know, I've definitely been like, I need to make a better effort. And maybe it'll wane. Maybe I'll go back to my normal lame texting self. I'm not good at <laughs> returning messages. I get there eventually. I just am not good at doing it quickly. Um, but that's that's one benefit. That's one silver lining. You know, somebody's death in the family can bring the family together, you mm-hmm. together with your friends, you together with what matters, you know, and and you see all your dearest friends sending you messages and you think, oh, my God, you know, I, you wind up feeling I, I'm lucky. I'm lucky, mm-hmm. not mm-hmm. not how unlucky I am. And that's, mm-hmm. you know, if there's a silver lining, I guess that's that's well. And as is. you said, it puts things into perspective. So you log on Twitter and you see some negative comments. You think, really, does this matter? No, it doesn't really yeah. matter. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Anyway, I, you know, it made me curious because I was reading the the packet, the research packet, getting ready for our interview. Mm. And you wrote a book. I was like, I should ask him about that. I haven't read it, but it sounds interesting. And I wondered if it was on point, Heavens on Earth, 2018. Mm-hmm. Right. So that was my book about um, the afterlife, the mainly the scientific attempt to achieve immortality, you know, through mind uploading or cryonically frozen or oh. the transhumanists and that sort of thing. Although I do deal with religious uh, notions of the afterlife, of which there are many, as you know. And uh, the fact is, no one knows for sure what happens after we die. Uh, it's hard to imagine not being alive, because to imagine something, you have to be, you know, alive <laughs> and sentient. Mm. Uh, and so, uh, you know, just uh, picturing what happens after this life, it's really almost impossible uh, not to think of something continuing. And yet, we just don't have really good scientific evidence that that uh, our consciousness continues on but you know no one knows for sure you know could go into some quantum uh uh, ether field or something like that like some of the transhumanists think or but but really it's um you know the attempts to continue on um like by being chronically frozen or uploading your mind into the a cloud through you know the connect dome the copy of all your I didn't know anything about that I've heard about oh, yeah, the cryo what's that second thing 
oh, uh, the connectome, uh, which is the equivalent of your genome, a, a copy of all your synaptic connections, uh, which would record all your memories. And then you you scan it and you upload it into a cloud. N no one can do this. We're not even remotely <laughs> close to being able to okay, do I was this. Say. this is th th these are the ideas of like tech billionaires. You know, if I can't live forever in this body, I'll, I'll upload my mind into the cloud and then maybe download it into a future body that's, you know, that's a clone or whatever, a robot. Yeah, these are it's it's all sci-fi. It's fun. It's interesting. But, you know, there's no evidence that any of this could but like happen. The so again, freezing that that can happen. Like you can. Right. People have frozen their brains. I mean, Walt Disney. Oh, yes, say, it, and it's been done, but, but no the, one's ever been brought back and not, no, no of animal. Course. No animal has been frozen and brought back and 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 made alive again. That has not happened, and and it it doesn't look like to me it's going to happen anytime soon. So again, don't bank on that. <laughs> Appreciate I, I every say, day. I, I wouldn't want it. You know, I wouldn't want it if somebody if they developed it for for real and they said you you can do this and in a thousand years we'll bring you back. You know, or there's a good mm -hmm. shot somebody will bring you back. Can you imagine how scary that would be? Can you imagine mm. if we went back a thousand years ago and took one of those folks uh and open and open their eyes and shocked. woke them up yeah. they'd yeah. be terrified <laughs> they'd probably wind up taking their own lives it would be so terrifying everybody you loved is gone mm -hmm. nothing you knew is still present the world is so big and scared i mean it, i don't i just feel like i don't know even the most evolved brain would be <laughs> terrified yeah. i don't think that'd be a pleasant experience but Megan, you could you could write a, uh, you could be a history professor a, a thousand years from now, and, and when they ask you about the Trump era, you go, "Hey, I was there. <laughs> Here's what happened." <laughs> Maybe they throw throw me in a loony bin if they didn't know my history. <laughs> like, no, I swear, I really was. Uh, well, that's fascinating. I don't. I will not be freezing myself. You heard it here first. Um, <laughs> that it kind of you know it's not like you're kind of an expert in how the mind can trick itself right into thinking. They put mm -hmm. the, some helmet on and all their brain is going to download like we, you know, on some sort of chip. Um, and that's kind of what your book is about and kind of what Skeptic mm -hmm. Magazine is devoted to and how we fool ourselves. We're better at fooling ourselves than anybody else. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the conspiracy. So conspiracy theories, it's so apt right now. They're everywhere. They're mm -hmm. everywhere. And I will tell you, even as a news person, you have to work so hard to separate fact from fiction because there are people actively trying to mislead us, right? So mm -hmm. it's like, okay, some people do lie. You can't put blind faith in anyone. It's good to question, but that doesn't mean Hillary Clinton is running a pedophile ring out of a pizza <laughs> joint in Washington, D.C. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. so start there, like the broad brush approach to separating fact from fiction and not getting drawn in to conspiracy theories. Right. So my my theory is a kind of a a, a three part or three legged stool theory of proxy conspiracism, tribal conspiracism and constructive conspiracism. So the first uh, proxy conspiracism, let's just take that example of of the uh, Pizzagate, you know, that that there's a secret satanic pedophile cult being run out of a pizzeria by Hillary Clinton and Beyonce and Tom Hanks and whoever else in the Democratic Party. Now, does anyone really believe that? Um, well, one guy did, Edgar Welch, you know, he went there with an AR-15 style rifle and to shoot up the place and he drove three and a half hours and made a video for his daughters and, and uploaded it. And so you can see what his motive was. He thought there was a crime going on. And, and that is something you would do, I suppose, if you really believed 
this was true and no one was doing anything about it. I mean, that's what he said. Mm-hmm. I'm going in um, and so forth. And, but most people, I think when they say, yeah, there could be something to it. They tick the box on a survey about Pizzagate and they tell posters, yeah, there might be something to it. They probably don't really believe it in the same way that you and I believe in other things, you know, that there's going to be money in the bank and gas in my tank and and uh, the germ theory of disease or whatever, just kind of basic things of life that we believe. I don't think people, when they say they believe Pizzagate conspiracy theories like that, really mean it that way. It's more of a proxy for something else, the kind of thing those Democrats would do. Those libtards are so confused and crazy. And, they, and then maybe they conflate something like, yeah, wasn't Clinton, Bill, on that airplane with Jeffrey Epstein to that island and there was pedophilia going on there. Yeah, there's something about that. You know, so in their minds, they kind of confabulate all these story into a conspiracy theory, you know, such that if you refute it, if you took somebody that said they believe it to the comet ping pong pizza place and said, look, there's no there's no basement here. There's no pedophile ring. It's not like they're going to go, well, I, in that case, I'll vote for Hillary. They were never going to vote for Hillary. They don't like that. But, but would they say, OK, I believe it. Like now having toured the facility. Now I believe it. Now I believe it's not true. Well, they might say, um, yeah, OK, this one's not true. But what you hear is like, yeah, but some others are probably true. Something like this could be going on. It's the kind of thing Democrats would do, even if this one's not uh, in, uh, particularly true. My my case study of this was the OJ trial, you know, which OJ was acquitted based on a conspiracy theory that the LAPD planted the bloody glove and the blood splatter drops and all that stuff. And even though it was clear that was not the case here and that he really was guilty, the jury, again, mostly African-Americans, um, on a kind of a proxy conspiracy theory said, even if this one's not true, it's the kind of thing the LAPD have done. And the fact is they have done that, right? If you look at the history of the uh, relationship of the LAPD with African-American community in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, it was not good. And police did plant evidence, right? So in a way they're signaling, maybe this one's not true, but it is the kind of thing that has happened. And therefore, in this case, they acquitted. So I think a lot of conspiracies are are in that camp um, as proxies. Are there people who are more prone to get pulled into this than others? Mm, Yes. So there's a, a lot of predictive factors, for example, being... Uh, a little paranoid makes people more likely to believe conspiracy theories. Again, in my constructive conspiracism, I'm arguing that's a, a feature, not a bug, because as you mentioned at the start, there's enough of these conspiracy theories that turn out to be true. Watergate and Iran-Contra and the Pentagon Papers and WikiLeaks showing all the things the CIA was doing in the 1950s and 60s, the FBI you know, bugging Martin Luther King's phone and taping his sexcapades and so on. Uh, you know, our government was doing this. The CIA was doing this. You know, COINTELPRO, the, C- the FBI's program to plant uh, spies in American social justice groups like the American Indian Movement and feminist groups and the Black Panthers and so on. I mean, th- th- this was illegal, immoral stuff that Congress didn't approve, didn't even know about. Oftentimes, the president didn't even know what the CIA and the FBI were doing. There's enough of that that people think, I. I, I, this is not entirely crazy to think that this one in particular could be true. 
right? And uh, so, or false flag operations like uh, Alex Jones. I mean, it sounds completely ridiculous about Sandy Hook being a false flag operation or 9-11 as an inside job false flag operation. But in fact, we have evidence now since the late 90s that the CIA and the FBI, particularly the CIA with uh, Operation Northwoods, presented uh, President Kennedy with a whole list of false flag operations as a pretext to invading Cuba and assassinating Castro, including shooting down a commercial airliner uh, oh of um, of American citizens. Now, to his credit, uh, McNamara and Kennedy said, we're not going to do that. But the fact that high up in the American government, people were proposing that we do these kinds of false flag operations shows you how high up conspiracism is and why people are in part uh, susceptible to these things, because a lot okay. of them are true. But how do you know if you're a little bit paranoid? Like, I don't even know what the signs of that are. <laughs> right. Well, um, it, it, it depends on, okay, so here's, let me frame it this way. There's, it's kind of a signal detection problem. Enough conspiracy theories are true that it pays to be a little bit paranoid, but does the signal and the noise stand out enough? Right. So just, just think of it as like a, a, a two by two grid. So up in this corner, you have real conspiracy theories, Th conspiracy theories that turn out to be true. And you signal, I think it's true. That, that's a hit. Over here, you have conspiracy theories that are true conspiracies and you fail to recognize them. So that's a type uh, one, a type two error, a false negative. You you fail to recognize the, the real conspiracy. Down here, we have uh, false conspiracy theories uh, and you say that they're true. That's a miss. That's a that's a that's a, a false positive, a type one error. So my argument is that it pays to make more type one errors than type two errors. That is, think of a conspiracy theory as real when it's not is is a is a better mistake to make than missing a real conspiracy theory because that might harm you. And my evolutionary argument is that in, in small bands and, and, and tribes of of people that in which we evolved, there were a lot of coalitional. Um, shenanigans going on of people plotting against other people within a group, groups plotting against other groups. We know this from anthropological studies of indigenous peoples that a lot of this kind of stuff does go on. It pays to be a little paranoid just in case. Mm -hmm. And so in general, my argument is that we tend to, toward uh, erring on the side of assuming conspiracy theories are true just in case. So it's not that some people are paranoid irrationally. That is, it pays to be a little rationally paranoid. And so then the question becomes, well, but does that mean all conspiracy theories are true? No, of course not. A lot of them are just completely crazy, bogus ideas that are not true. So how do you know, right? So then you have to get into you know, some of the criteria of our signal detection problem, how many people have to be involved in the conspiracy, how many elements have to come together just right, how grand is the conspiracy theory? Uh, and those are the kinds of things I, I address in the book about, you know, how do you know uh, if if you're uh, you're right or not? And I feel like so the people who are really conspiracy theorists are serial conspiracy theorists. You know, like it's mm. not just like I really believe that Wuhan started that the virus started in the Wuhan lab, which, by the way, is not mm -hmm. a conspiracy theory. It's probably true. Uh, that's legit. But like. If you're a conspiracy theorist, you probably said that before we had any, maybe you said that before we had any evidence of it and you turned out to be right. But I feel like that person, you, maybe you look at their life and they were a 9-11 truther and they were a Barack Obama birther and they, you know, they had a lot of these uh, along the chain. So you they probably mm -hmm. got a lot of family members who are like, oh, here she goes again, you know, <laughs> right? Like I know <laughs> exactly. some of those people. 
Right. So surveys show that people that tick the box for one conspiracy theory are more likely to tick the box for a bunch of them uh, or vice versa. So somebody and, and even crazier, my favorite paper that I, I, I uh, wrote about in the book was called Alive and Dead. People that tick the box that Princess Diana was murdered are also more likely to tick the box that she faked her death and is still yeah. alive somewhere with John oh, Elvis too. And, and JFK and, Jr. That's right. They're all they're all living in Argentina, right? Marilyn Monroe and so on. <laughs> Let's go there. I know. Well, part of it is wishful thinking. I mean, that that, that stuff is like part of it's wishful thinking. There's some of like, that. There's also what's called the proportionality bias. That is, we we expect uh, effects that we observe to be matched with an equal size cause. So just just sort of our folk physics. If I take a little pebble and throw it. I don't have to put much effort into it, but if I take a big rock, I have to really heave it. And if I have a boulder, I've got to use all my might to throw it, right? So there's kind of a equality of cause and effect. And so, for example, if you ask subjects to roll, roll some dice. Now, try to roll a small number, you know, and they'll kind of gently just drip the, the dice. But if you say, try to roll a large number, they'll take the dice and really heave it <laughs> as if somehow that has some magical effect. Of course, it doesn't. But that's kind of the folk psychology of it. So in conspiracy theories, you know, someone like JFK being shot and taken out by who? Some lone nut, Lee Harvey Oswald? That just doesn't match, right? So you got to add the FBI and the CIA and the KGB and the Russians and the Moffins, Mafia and Castro. And so there's kind of a match between cause and effect or Princess Diana, cause of death. Drunk driving, speeding, no seatbelt. You know, tens of thousands of Americans die of that every year on American highways. But princesses are not supposed to die like that, right? So that would be the royal family and MI6 and uh, who knows who's involved in that. And, you know, so but so if you take something like the Holocaust, one of the worst things that's ever happened, the cause of that was the Nazi regime, one of the worst political regimes in human history. There's a match. When there's not a match, then, Mm. you know, we feel we have to add elements to it. No, it's fascinating. My gosh. I, you know, you mentioned Alex Jones. He's been all over the news lately. And I know you were very mm-hmm. interested in that case, the defamation cases against him, first by Neil Hesselin down in Texas, and now this other one by uh, many of the families still living in Connecticut, in Connecticut court. That's the one where he was, he's faced with, he, he was faced with a $50 million judgment down in Texas, and then came a nearly billion dollar judgment against him in Connecticut. And he live streamed the verdict. Alex Jones did. He talked all. I mean, it, absurd things he was saying about the families and so on, even like to the to the last. Um, what do you make of him? Because he's I, I've said this before. I interviewed him, of course. I went down there. I remember he that. said a lot of crazy shit. Mm-hmm. I went back home to NBC. We fact checked all of it. A lot of it turned out to be true. A lot of it I was like, he's a lunatic. And then my team at NBC, which is top notch in terms of their, you know, adherence to facts and, and research, they were like, oh my God. <laughs> they, what look at they really are merging humans and pigs. I can't remember the specifics, but it was like, mm-hmm. there's a little mm-hmm. goat with a human face. I <laughs> whatever. <laughs> Don't quote me on that. I'm just saying yes, he had a yes. lot of stuff and and we were expecting none of it to check out. And a lot of it checked out. And to me, that explained why people got sucked into his rhetoric on something like Sandy Hook, because he's not all wrong all the time. Right. And most conspiracy theories are not complete nonsense, right? There's always a little bit of an element of truth. I mentioned the Jeffrey Epstein uh, uh, case with Clinton on the plane going to that island. Is there some connection there, right? And before you know it, you're in the Pizzagate. Uh, it, much of his rhetoric is like that. He and and remember, he's on there for hours every day, just spitballing a hundred ideas a day, 
And so if your team fact checks them, they're going to inevitably find some element of truth about one or two of them or some of them or even a bunch of them, right? And and also there's a conflation of, of intent uh, or motive behind the alleged conspiracies there. So just take something like the 9-11 truth movement. You know, they 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 debate about to what extent they think it's an inside job by the Bush administration as a false flag operation to as an excuse to invade Iraq, Afghanistan and Iraq, but mainly Iraq. Okay, so they call this, did he let it happen on purpose, LIHOP, or did he mm. make it happen on purpose, MIHOP? Mm. Well, my answer to this is neither. It's it's what I call cowhop capitalized on what happened on purpose <laughs> and this is true what this is what politicians do um you know when uh, after pearl harbor roosevelt was accused of either letting it happen on purpose or making it happen on purpose as a pretext to supporting great britain in the war against nazi germany and you know he couldn't get the uh, congressional approval to go to war and and so on american firsters were were isolationists and you know he needed some pretext so pearl harbor happened and he took advantage of that. He capitalized on what happened. He didn't make it happen. He didn't know. Same thing with Bush, right? He didn't know 9-11 was going to happen. And in hindsight, with hindsight bias, you have that memo from Condoleezza Rice, August 9th, 2001, uh, Al-Qaeda to attack US, on U.S. soil. So they knew about it. Why didn't he do something about it? Yet with hindsight, you know, there's a thousand pieces of intel uh, collected by the CIA every day. Which ones are the ones that, in hindsight, turn out to be true? You point to it, but but of course, without hindsight, you don't know which one is going to turn out to be true. So it's not fair to someone like Bush for that. But of course, he did capitalize on what happened mm -hmm. uh, for other political uh, reasons. And so, one of the things that bothers me about conspiracy theories like this is they're distracting us from real things. You know, real things like what is the relationship of the U.S. government to the Saudi to the Saudi regime? What exactly is going on there? What, what, what about the finances and money and oil? And, you yeah, know, that's what, what people we, who really do want to kill us and what what we could have been doing to stop it, as opposed yeah. to running this false flag like we did it ourselves and not examining that as robustly as we ought to. Yeah, exactly. Right. So, you know, again, this this proportionality pro, uh, bias, you know, you're telling me 19 guys with box cutters brought down the World Trade Center buildings. That just seems impossible. Right. But in fact, in a free society, that is the way it would happen, yeah, that, that right. these are people are largely invisible in the nooks and crannies of a democracy like ours. You can get away with that. Instead, we're told that, you know, it was an inside job. OK, so who how did they do this? So, so here's our our signal detection problem. How many people would have to be involved to plant explosive devices in the World Trade Center buildings, right? We know how this is done. You know, it would take hundreds of people, if not thousands, would have to be involved. They have to break through the drywall of the building to plant the explosive devices in the structural beams, and no one seemed to notice this happening. And then they'd have to plant the explosive devices at the exact floors that the planes hit, because on the videos, you can see the buildings begin to collapse at those floors, right? So they would have to coordinate all of this with the pilots that are flying the planes or their drone planes. And by the way, there are, there, there are no planar conspiracy theorists. There were no planes. This was all CGI. And, oh, and, wow. And, really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. Oh God. So, Wait, can I just ask, like, are those people functional? Are those people maintaining nine to five jobs? And, you know, are, are those or are they loons who can't they don't have a no home. You it's know. tempting to say they're you know wackadoodle weirdos with their tinfoil hats but no in fact most of the people i've met uh, jfk conspiracy theorists 9-11 truthers the obama birthers you know all the way up to the rigged election 2020 you know these are largely intelligent educated but people I would separate with jobs. those out 
I would separate those out. I mean, I can make arguments on all those. And I've, I've interviewed RFK Jr., who's coming back mm. on tomorrow. That's the one that I mentioned mm. we had pre-taped. Um, and he, he that, you know, his father was assassinated. That was his uncle. JFK mm -hmm. was assassinated down in Texas. He believes it was the military industrial complex. He believes it was the CIA and so on, the intelligence um, groups. Now, I don't know if that makes my conspiracy theorist so much as somebody who is the son of the AG who was murdered, whose president was murdered, you know, and all that. Like, he's got real reasons to believe. I don't know. I just feel like can't lump them all in. I'm talking about the true lunatics mm. who, as you just said, think that the 9-11 attack didn't even involve planes, that even those people who witnessed it with their actual eyes on site are sort of in on it and that mm -hmm. the rest of us just saw a computer simulate like that's special category of out yes there. yes that's that's way out there for sure so what about but, those yeah, people like, I, are, I, should, but, like if i would i know that such a person was a little off if i met him maybe i mean if you went to a flat earth society conference um <laughs> again may, maybe they seem a little off but most of them have jobs right they have families and so on they keep gas in the tank and they take the kids to school and they go to work um, it, that's not the problem. The problem is a, is a kind of a broken epistemology, as it's sometimes called, just knowing how to think about things rationally. So if you just take something, let's take, take the JFK thing. Uh, okay, so there there is a history of people attempting to assassinate uh, leaders. This happens all the time in history. And sure. so, and Lincoln, of course, was assassinated by a cabal, and we discovered that within hours. Um, and other presidents have been attempted to be uh, assassinated. But why is there, for example, to get, get the counterfactual, why are there no conspiracy theories about uh, John Hinckley attempting to assassinate Ronald Reagan? Well, because he missed, right? I mean, he didn't kill him. Well, he missed, and, but he and, didn't kill him. I mean, he, he didn't miss, yeah. but he but he didn't kill him. I mean, had he had he killed him, had Reagan died, I, I predict there would have been you know massive conspiracy. Who was behind this guy? You know, why was he allowed to stand there on the sidewalk as Reagan walked out of that hotel? You know, or um, Squeaky From, one of Manson's girls that att attempted to kill President Ford. Well, she missed, but had she killed him, okay, what was she doing? Who was behind her? The CIA mm -hmm. weren't they weren't they following That's because Manson's of the proportionality? Family? You said. Right. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Right. So had Kennedy not been killed that day in Dealey Plaza, let's say Oswald missed or just just wounded him, or let's say it was the mayor of of Dallas that was killed that day. Uh, would there be conspiracy theories? Would 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 Oliver Stone be making documentary four hour documentary films about the CIA and the mil military industrial? No, none of this would be happening. Well, then it's you, because you it was Kennedy. Know. If it were the if it was the mayor, you'd know that the CIA is not interested in the mayor. You know, it's like that. <laughs> right. The bigger it gets, the more likely it is that somebody nefarious right. and large and powerful might be involved. It's impossible. You know, some some Joe schmo on the street. It's not going to be the CIA. All right, stand by because right. there's much more to get, get to get to. I know you've written a lot. I find it fascinating. You're all fired up about the Leah Thomases of the world going into women's sports. And there is an egregious, egregious example on the volleyball court that I want to I want to get your take on uh, as Michael Shermer stays with us. So, Michael, um, you've written a lot. This is interesting to me that you've got strong feelings on biological men participating in women's sports after they declare themselves trans. And there's been an egregious example of this in the news just this weekend where um, a high schooler. OK, let me make sure I, I get the facts right. This is from The Blaze. Um, it's at a Cherokee County, North Carolina, where a transgender player, male to female, it's always male to female, spiked a ball so forcefully it calls it that it caused severe injuries to a young girl's head and neck. There is low quality video of the incident. You can see it here for the YouTube audience. Here's the that's the trans player 
in the green, slamming the ball. It hits her in the face. She goes down hard. You can tell it's it's an unusually hard hit. And now, so the player collapsed, uh, stayed down for a long amount of time. And now we just got this again per the blaze that reports uh, standby. Get my facts that the girl is said to be still experiencing long term concussion symptoms, including vision problems, etc., has not been cleared to return to play either by a physician or a neurologist. And I think Kelly McGuire, um, did you tell me that uh, they're not playing that team? They've they've halted play against that team. Yeah, they've halt for now. They've halted all further play against this team with the trans player. Can you believe this? Uh, well, I can believe it because of uh, how strong ideology is in pushing us into these kinds of um, unfortunate situations. I, I predicted this like a, over a year ago that if, but I was using MMA as an example, if a male, the female trans competed in an MMA competition and, and actually killed another woman or severely injured her and lawsuits ensued, that would put an end to the movement. And maybe this volleyball example, I hadn't seen that one, um, might do it because, you know, with, with physical uh, damage like that and concussions we know are very serious, uh, that could end up in lawsuits and then that'll, that'll bring the movement to an end. When I say the movement, I mean um, the kind of expansion of our concept of moral rights uh, to include, you know, LGBTQ gay rights and so on, same-sex marriage is the next step to protect trans people. Yes, okay, in general, that seems right and fair, right? You shouldn't discriminate against people based on their um, gender or sexual preference or orientation and so forth. But uh, as Thomas Sowell says, you know, in, about society, that there are no perfect solutions, there's just trade-offs. So this is what I call conflicting rights issues that you know, the rights of trans uh, in this case are conflicting against the rights of women to compete against other women for which women fought for for decades, you know, Title IX protection and so on. You know, back when I was in high school and college, you know, the, the, the amount of funding for women's sports was was pretty, pretty low in the 70s. And and it's gotten much better. So uh, and there's a reason for that. And our most of our intuitions, as reflected in polls that say, you know, the vast majority of Americans are against um, male to female trans competing against biological women because they're not biological women. They're biological men post post uh, post puberty. And uh, that's the problem. And so somebody's going to get hurt. And this case you just showed could be an example of that. And didn't you have somebody on a Frisbee golf player? Uh, yeah, uh, recently. Yes. Yeah. Sa yeah. Same thing. I mean, the, the, you know, just the the structure of shoulders, muscles, tendons, bones, ligaments and so on. They're different. Post puberty women are not the same as men. They're overlapping bell curves. You can always find some women that are better than some men, but we're talking about on average. And when you get up into the upper echelons of say the top 1% or top 0.01% of athletes, you know, those differences are huge and, and it's just not fair. It's just not. This is what's you know, so but, egregious because it's one thing, the Leah Thomas situation was bad enough, right? That was mm -hmm. bad enough, but at least Leah Thomas swims in Leah Thomas's own lane and can't hurt mm -hmm. anybody. This I mean, you really have to say to parents now, if a trans athlete shows up to play against your daughter, you've really got to think about getting up and walking out and taking her with you. Mm -hmm. I really think I'd say to my daughter, you may not play against that that player. Mm -hmm. That is mm -hmm. not safe for you. And parents won't do it, even though they may want to, because they don't want to offend. So it's like. 
you're placing your kids, your kids safety below your PC instincts. Mm hmm. Right. A lot of uh, Leah Thomas's uh, female teammates uh, were afraid to speak out. Now some of them have. And thankfully, I, I think that because the International Swimming Organization uh, banned uh, male to female trans post puberty uh, from competing. So that was a good move. And I, I think that will be the direction. Ultimately, it may have to be nudged along by lawsuits in cases like this. But, it, you know, it's certainly, you know, just imagine uh, women's tennis. You know, we just celebrated uh, Serena Williams's you know, uh, retirement after her massive career. She would have had no career if there were no female. None. To, to none. No one would have even heard of her. She wouldn't have made a dime. So it, it's true, the physical uh, harm, but there's also uh, financial harm. You know, if you're competing for even on college sports, if you're competing for um, uh, uh, sponsorships or uh, fellowships, uh, tuition scholarships based on your athletic performance and college costs you, what, fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000 a year, and you don't get the money because somebody beat you uh, on the court or on the field, then that that is harmful. You said uh, that this you call this the unmistakable, undeniable, unethical unfairness. That's what this <laughs> is, the, the, this this dynamic, yes. unmistakable, undeniable, unethical unfairness. That is nothing more than cheating. It's cheating yeah. to win. You call people like Leah Thomas trans dopers, which I think yeah. is a very effective term. And as we've learned from Chris Rufo, language in these d debates does matter. They are mm -hmm. trans dopers because they have a mm -hmm. testosterone advantage. No woman would be allowed to compete with. And even if they can lower it, even if they can lower it, they never lower it to what it, where a woman actually is. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't get rid of their limbs and their muscles and their height and all the other physical advantages they have post puberty. Massive differences. You're right. So I, I use that analogy because I'm a lifelong cyclist. And of course, as you know, in our sport, there was massive doping issues, performance enhancing drugs. And the fact is, if you are post-puberty and you've had that huge uh, changes made in your body across the board, a thousand changes in the body from pre to post-puberty, and then you say, well, I'm going to take a year off like the NCAA required and do the testosterone suppressant treatment and, and so forth, it, it's too late. It doesn't make th that big a difference. You know, there's maybe a one or 2%, maybe 5% decrease in the athlete's performance pre and post testosterone suppression treatment. But that doesn't change the thousand other things in their body. Their bones are already big and strong and muscles and ligaments and tendons, oxygen capacity and, and so on. It would be exactly the equivalent of taking testosterone or human growth hormone or EPO or whatever as a performance enhancing drug. It does matter. It makes a huge difference. Those drugs are like a 10% difference in sports. And so, uh, and, and I would say probably puberty is more than 10%, depending on which sport you're comparing male and female, but it's massive and it's just not there. And again, it's an on average difference. You can, anecdotes don't help us. Well, I know this woman that can beat most of the men. We're not talking about that woman and most of the men. We're talking about on average, the, the top performers in the field. It's just not fair. And so mm -hmm. it's just, it's just so, so, it's so wrong you, on so many levels. I, I just, what's your proposed solution? You know, what do you think parents, coaches, fellow athletes placed in this position should do? Well, um, boycott, just refuse to compete. 
to say, look, if this person is in our uh, in in the competition, we're not going to compete. All of them. Okay, so this is a common knowledge problem. How do, how does everybody know that they're supposed to do that? Well, you have to have a kind of a coordination game. That is, people have to say agree ahead of time. If this happens, you all, all of us are going to boycott at once. Because if you if it, if there's no communication, you can't uh, you rely on any one athlete to be the person that stands up and says, "I'm not going to compete." Because if everybody else goes keeps their mouth shut, then then that one person, um, you know, is harmed. And so that's not fair either. Right. So it has to be. A, how do you a get them? How do you get when, when you've got like the woke, super lefty, you know, high PC parents who are like, absolutely mm. not. I mean, we saw even other players, not so much at UPenn, who actually had to swim against Leah Thomas right, on their team, but from a couple of other schools come out and say, it's not all about, not everything's about winning. You know, so there's a greater principle here. Yeah. Well, so you're going to get then? some who are going to give you that lecture. Yeah. What's the point of doing sports if, if you don't try to win? You know, that's yeah. the whole point of games. <laughs> it's, yeah. For most games, most sports anyway, is to try to win. What's Otherwise, why do it? Just, just go recreational play by yourself or whatever. But yeah, so that's not right. Um, I think I do. I do think this too will pass. Hopefully, uh, you know, maybe it'll take a decade total for the whole thing to play out because we've gone through these things before the pendulum swings back and forth goes to extreme people push back. We do know recent surveys just from last week. You know, again, it's like 80% something of Americans are against male and female trans competing against women and women's sports, even though the same majority also thinks trans should have rights and should not be fired for being trans and discriminated against and so forth. So it's not a rights issue. It's it's a justice and a fairness issue. And and just to remind people, folks like Leah Thomas have absolutely no compunction about what they're doing, no regrets, no guilt, no empathy for their fellow teammates and what they're putting them through. As a reminder, here was Leah Thomas responding to her upset uh, teammates in an interview she did with ABC uh, back when I was during or right before the NCAA's top five. Women who signed the letter anonymously said that they absolutely supported your right to transition, but they simply think it's unfair for you to compete against cisgendered women. You can't go halfway and be like, I support trans women and trans people, but only only to a certain point where if you support trans women as women and they've met all the all the nca requirements and then i don't know if you can really say something like that trans women are not a threat to women's sports so deal with it all right mm. wait i only have two minutes left so let me shift gears and ask you about kanye because you know mm. talk about conspiracy like like will you listen to him he genuinely believes there's the cabal of jewish people controlling mm -hmm. these industries yes now we finally apologize for it but you know what do you make of his comments yeah, I saw the uh, you know attribution that he's bipolar, so we have to forget that. No, it's wrong. You know, anti this is anti-Semitism. It's as old as, as civilization really uh, goes back thousands of years. The Jews have always been accused of doing things, and uh, and also there was in the in the black community back in the sort of '90s when Louis Farrakhan. Uh, you can see the our, our cover painting by Pat of Louis Farrakhan there, uh, you know, accusing the Jews of doing this and doing that. Uh, and, you know, so much of conspiracy theories involve 
Jews. It's just, you know, we have to stomp that out. We have to just stand up and say, no, that is wrong. You can't say that. Stop saying that. You're lying. It's not true. <laughs> and if not, because we're, then again, there'll be harm committed. It's not good. Mm, right. Exactly. There's already like banners going up on certain bridges and roads yeah, by that. crazy LA. like KKK. In LA, of all places. Yeah. Come on. Right. So somebody as famous and well-known and successful as Kanye starts saying this. And unfortunately, it does become a permission slip for the the, the crazy groups who are devoting their lives right. to this to get right. more active. So you do need to pay right. attention. And even yeah. though you might not be able to talk Kanye or anybody else out of their beliefs, you can make clear that there are certain lines we're not going to cross as a society. And anybody thinking about toying with it uh, is going to be pushed hard uh out of we all need to stand circles. up and say something yep yeah all right michael what a pleasure thank you so much for being here good luck the thank book you, is Megan. called conspiracy always a pleasure thank you coming up senator ted cruz is here he just got protested over on the view <laughs> and yelled at while attending a yankees astros game last night at yankee stadium what don't forget, we'll ask him all about that. And in the meantime, don't forget, if you want to find more Ted Cruz, you can he see him on The Megyn Kelly Show. He's been here a couple of times, along with a million other great guests, people who help make us what we are on SiriusXM Triumph Channel 111 every weekday at noon east. Check us out on YouTube. And there you'll find our, our full archives, too, on YouTube and on uh, Apple and so on. Joining me now, Texas Senator Ted Cruz. He was just with our friends over on The View. We'll ask him why he did that. <laughs> and protesters started going nuts in the audience. Maybe that's why. We're going to play it for you. His brand new book, Justice Corrupted, How the Left Weaponized Our Legal System, is out tomorrow. Senator Cruz, great to have you back here on the show. Megan, thanks for having me. Great to be with you. Why would you do it? Why go <laughs> over there? That That is not your, those are not your people. Well, look, I mean, I think we need to be talking to the whole country. And, and I think conservatives spent too much time just just preaching to the choir. I think it's important to have a real and civil conversation and actually get to substance. You, you know, uh, yeah, so you could turn from the choir to the congregation instead of going right <laughs> into the pits of hell. <laughs> well, but I got to say, for some of the viewers of The View, I, you know, they've never heard another another side. So, for example, mm -hmm. Whoopi was going on and on about, well, you know, uh, Republicans contest the legitimacy of the election. Will you say Joe Biden is legitimate? And I put it, I said, wait a second, why is there a double standard? Why don't you apply this to Democrats? Democrat after Democrat, Hillary Clinton sat there on the view and said Donald Trump was illegitimate election. Stacey Abrams sat there on the view and, and, and said that Brian Kemp was illegitimate elected. And all of the women on the view nodded along and agreed with it. And I said, how can it be that you only think, and by the way, Whoopi jumped in and said, well, they were, those were illegitimate. And I said, well, <laughs> it, it's only legitimate if the Democrat wins, but not if the Republican wins. And, and I think right. it was important for some of their viewers at least to, to hear something other than the straight party line. I can't tell. I haven't seen it yet. I just was told about it by my team. I can tell whether the person protesting you was upset with you or is just a left wing loon. Here's the soundbite and we'll talk about it. It's very simple. If you look at inflation, the, the Nobel laureate economist Milton Friedman explained that in the United States inflation has one cause and one cause only. Inflation in the United States has one cause and one cause only. And that is when the federal government spends too much money. Okay. We have seen trillions and trillions oh of God, dollars so right, that's spent by Joe Biden and um, the Democrats. So finally, Whoopi has to tell him to shut up. 
I don't know what they're saying, and I don't want to promote their group, but they're upset about climate change. Yeah, look, they they were climate protesters. As, as far as I can tell, they were not even directed at me. They were actually protesting the view, but obviously my being there gave them a hook to show up. And so they were, you know, I, I, I joked afterwards, I'm glad they didn't have a Van Gogh painting uh, hanging yes. in the background. These nuts might have yes. thrown soup on it. The Monet painting that just got attacked by these yeah. loons. I was relieved to see that after they did that, uh, they, they the painting wasn't damaged because yes. they chose a painting that had glass in front of it. I'd like to hope they did that intentionally because that's what happened a couple weeks ago. But look at these assholes. Like, I'm sorry. Bless. Forgive me, Senator. Yeah, I shouldn't no, no, see that's, swear in front of you. <laughs> that, that, that's horrific. And obviously, you know, when you're dealing with masterpieces and great works of art, that they're literally destroying them for for humanity. Now, you're right. It, it had glass on it. So the painting itself is preserved. The frame is not. And often the frame has, has historical significance as well with the painting. But these people are just... Are, are just radical. You know, I have to say, you know, they, they keep gluing their hands to the walls. I, I'd really like one of these museums simply to come in, remove the paintings, clear out the room and just leave them there. You know, just leave them there for you know a week or so, you know, maybe give them some water. But they glue themselves to the wall. I guess they can figure out what the solution is. <laughs> I guess it'd have to have like a little straw in it. <laughs> just, <laughs> I like your plan. Uh, all right. So before we get to the news, because there's so much to discuss, President Biden gave an interview that made a lot of headlines. What happened at Yankee Stadium? They yelled at you there, too. I mean, they yell at everybody in your defense, but I guess it got a little a little tense. All right. Last night was spectacular. Listen, I'm, I'm a diehard Astros fan. And so uh, I went to game two of the series in Houston. And then last night I went to game four up in Yankee Stadium. And, and it I, I knew I was get going into the belly of the beast. I was in bright orange Astros colors. And, oh, and, so and you it deserved was, it. Is what oh, you're saying. You deserved and, it. And I have to admit, look, I mean, the Strohs, we swept them in four games. And, and every time we got a hit, I was up cheering. And so um, I, I will say there were a lot of people suggesting I do things that, that are actually, I think, anatomically impossible. <laughs> um, but but you know what was what was actually really encouraging? There were a ton of people who was also coming up and wanting to take selfies and I didn't know if some some guy would take a swing at me or something. And thankfully, that never happened. I, you know, I, I, I saw a few middle fingers. But but frankly, if you're an Astros fan at a Yankees game, uh, you, you got to expect that. You know what you're getting. Um, do we, I guess we have that video. I don't know. All right. Well, just all these lovely walks down memory lane for you. Here we go. Here it is. Oh, okay. You suck. You fucking suck. You're a disgrace. You go to fucking hell. Remember when Trump called your wife ugly? Remember when Trump called your wife ugly and then you nominated him? You're a disgrace. You nominated him. All right, so they're not that well-versed in how the Senate's role works, but okay. Well, and I'll say, Megan, I I have one word for that lovely individual and a few of his compatriots, and that one word is scoreboard. Um, You know, I I just saw a stat today that that, that the Astros... Are, are the only team in history to have eliminated uh, the Yankees from postseason play four times. Uh, I was there the last time we beat them in game six, which was awesome. Uh, I've been to a bunch of the games with with my youngest daughter, Catherine, who you know. You know yeah. Catherine well. You've known her since yeah. she was little bitty. And, and I got to tell you, it's one of the coolest things. So 2017 World Series, I, I got to go to games three, four, and five. Game three, I took my dad, which was totally cool to like do a father son. I grew up having Astros season tickets as a kid. Game four, I took Heidi, which I adore Heidi, but frankly, it was a waste. She doesn't care about baseball and she was bored (laughs) the whole time. And I'm like, okay. Mistake. Game five, uh, I took Catherine. It was the day after her eighth birthday. 
Um, and it's an interesting testament to the time that, that, that it was. 2017, it was just Catherine and me. We actually didn't have any security. I've got security now just because the world has gone insane. Mm. But then it was just the two of us in the stadium. And if you remember game five, that was the one that went till about 1.30 in the morning. And we're dancing and celebrating and hugging. And I told her that day, I said, I said, sweetheart, you, you won't fully appreciate this now, but you will tell your grandkids that you were here. You have just witnessed the greatest baseball game in the history of the Houston Astros. That was that was six years ago. And every season now in the postseason, I take Catherine has become the best daddy daughter bonding mm-hmm. like like it is. It is hard to state find something I love more than going with Catherine to to, to Astros oh, postseason. Well, I can honestly, I understand what you said about Heidi. I was stuck with Doug one time watching the uh, Super Bowl. It was one of those ones where Tom Brady was leading the Patriots to a come from behind victory, and the you know it was like crazy Tom Brady the Hail Mary thing, and no one thought they were going to win. They did win thanks to him. And we were sitting in this bar because we were at a charity event, so we were like we went out to this bar to watch it. It was just the two of us because it was like no man's land. Mm-hmm. And I, and it was crazy how good the throw was. And I remember saying, he is so good at throwing. <laughs> Doug was like, is there anyone else I can talk to? A- anyone? <laughs> he needed Catherine. So, so, so Megan, when, when the University of Texas played USC for the national championship in the Rose Bowl, Heidi and I went to that game. And it was actually the first football game she's ever been to. She is not a, not a big sports fan. And and that was an amazing game. Vince Young dominated the game. Texas won a national championship. And I remember in the middle of the game, Heidi looks at me and goes, "That that that Vince Young guy's pretty good." I'm like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's he's not bad." <laughs> well, it makes me laugh to think of the people like trying to intimidate you, because of course, as I said in your intro, a guy who's argued before, before the U.S. Supreme Court more than a dozen times doesn't scare easy. They are way scarier than anybody giving you the middle finger. It's like you have to have nerves of steel to do that and not to mention all of your political experience. So, yeah, wrong target. But well, it did raise something that I wanted yeah. to ask you about, if you don't mind. Sure. And that is they raised the, the Trump's insult of Heidi. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that was a very ugly chapter. And I yeah. remember tweeting about it and how wrong that was. And But I do like I've told a couple people, oh, Ted Cruz is coming on a Monday and a couple people were more left leaning. But they said, how could he have forgiven Trump after that? And I don't know if that's a question you get, but what is the answer to that? So it was actually a question I got just just an hour ago from from Anna Navarro. On, on, oh, on the there view. you go. Like and, I said, they're more left leaning. And listen, the, the answer is one you'll understand. Uh, you'll remember well. 2016 was one hell of a primary. Trump and I beat the living daylights out of each other. We stood there and pounded over and over again. I ended up winning 12 states and and he ended up beating me. We both took hard, hard shots. The shots he took at Heidi and my dad were, were, were garbage. And I said it at the time, but I have to admit, actually, both Heidi and my dad cracked up laughing about it. They thought it was ridiculous. And, and then afterwards, once he won, he beat me. And once he was elected president in November, I had a decision to make. And my decision was, all right, am I going to do my job? I've been elected to represent 30 million Texans. I, I suppose I could say my feelings are hurt. I'm going to take my ball and go home. But you know what? If I was prepared to do that, then I need to be prepared to resign from my job because I can't yes. effectively represent 30 million Texans and refuse to work with the president. And and as you know, well, because because I was there, Trump uh, attacked and insulted you pretty nastily, too. Mm-hmm. But you had a job to do. You're a journalist. So you couldn't have said, all right, I'm not going to cover the president of the United States. I I. I'm mad. So to heck with my job, my responsibility. You know, you were you were an adult and said, I got a job to do, whether you didn't like what he said about you. But, you know, life life moves on. 
that's what I appreciate about you. You didn't make it about yourself. Yeah. You chose not to make it about yourself. I'm going to guess you don't go to bed at night with a little teddy bear that looks just like Donald Trump <laughs> and stroke his hair. Like it doesn't that, matter. That, that is you're... a fair guess. <laughs> like, you decided to make it about your constituents, you yeah. know, and for me too, like you made it about your job and sure. I made it about my job. And the vast majority of people in the media industry did not do that. And even some Republicans like the never Trumpers decided not to do that. And, uh, and, and it's one and thing make, if you're not elected, but if you're elected to represent real Republicans, you're there's a divergence there. And, and Megan, I'll point out something. There's a massive media double standard and hypocrisy because they only ask this question of Republicans. So if you remember back to the 2020 Democrat presidential debate, Kamala Harris stood on the stage and called Joe Biden a racist. She yes. called him a bigot, said you were for segregation. You were standing with segregation. Don't you remember, Kamala? I was that little girl. That was her shining moment. Now, she's perfectly happy to be vice president to the person she called a racist segregationist bigot. And I don't think I've ever once seen a corporate media reporter ask Kamala, well, do you still think that? And, and why are you willing to yeah. serve with him? It, it's purely a gotcha game. And it's, it's kind of silly, frankly. And not just Kamala, but... Corinne Jean-Pierre, the White House press yeah. secretary, just last week or the week before when that L.A. story broke of the racist co council woman and the, uh, the the two guys who listened to her racist comments yeah. about calling black children monkeys. Um, she came out there, Corinne Jean-Pierre, she was like, Democrats call out the bigots in their party. Democrats fire the people, the bigots in their party, or the people say racist things. It's like, hello, you elected one president, according to the vice president. Well, and, and I'll point out also, where was Corinne Jean-Pierre on, on Ralph Northam, the, the, the governor of Virginia, mm, the Democrat, right. governor blackface. had in his, in, in his yearbook, not just the blackface. So the weird thing is, it was a picture of a guy in blackface, another picture of a guy wearing a Ku Klux Klan regalia. Mm. And when the story broke, and he put it on his page, like he selected that picture, his first response is he said, you know, I could have been one of those two guys. I'm not sure. And, and the media was very strange. They all called it the blackface scandal. I thought that was bizarre. Like, if you cannot stand up and say with absolute certainty, I have never dressed as a Klansman. Like, holy crap, maybe you shouldn't be in public office. And, and That's a big one. It, it is an amazing. I actually talk about that in, in the new book, Justice Corrupted. I talk about the Democrats' history on race. You look at the Ku Klux Klan. The Ku Klux Klan was founded by the Democrats. Nathan Bedford Forrest, who, who led it, was a delegate to the 1860 National Democratic Convention. Uh, the Klan consisted almost exclusively of Democrats. The Jim Crow laws were written by Democrat politicians to prevent the voters from voting Democrats out of office. And the history, the, the, the Democrat Party has, has tragically trafficked in racism a long time, and all of that gets, gets ignored in the corporate media. And they're still obsessed with race. Yes. You write in the book about uh, the affirmative action policies that they're pushing at every turn, the critical race theory that they're shoving down the throats of our kids. This big case is up at the Supreme Court this term about whether they can continue using race in college admissions. First of all, as a lawyer and a very successful one, what do you make of that case and what, how do you think that's likely to go? So I think the, the plaintiffs are very likely to prevail. Uh, elite universities, especially Harvard and Yale, and, and unfortunately, I'm an alumnus of Harvard, that they openly, nakedly, blatantly engage in racial discrimination, and in particular, racial discrimination against Asian Americans. They've decided if they let students in based on merits, that they, they think 
too many Asian Americans would be admitted, so they're going to discriminate against them. And and under President Trump, the Department of Justice opened an investigation uh, into Yale and their practices of discriminating against Asian Americans. When Biden became president, one of the very first thing they did is dismiss the case. They said, we don't care about it at all. And I'll tell you, Megan, you may remember last year, there was a vote on the Senate floor on a bill that was called an Asian American hate crimes bill. And it was Maisie Hirono mm-hmm. from Hawaii. And it was all based on kind of a silly political point, which is they were trying to say that, that hate crimes against Asian Americans are Donald Trump's fault because he referred to COVID as, as, the, as the Wuhan virus because it came from Wuhan, China. And it, and it was sort of a political thumb in your eye. So I introduced a very simple amendment on the Senate floor. It was one paragraph. And the amendment said, the federal government shall give no funds to any university that discriminates in admissions or scholarships against Asian Americans. Oh, wow. We voted on it. I missed that. That's good. Every single Democrat voted no. It was a straight party line vote. It failed by one vote. To the best of my knowledge, I have never seen a single Democrat senator asked ever, why did you vote in favor of racial discrimination against Asian Americans? The corporate media just covers them up. And the reason they vote that way is they know they'll be protected because journalists, far too many of them have abandoned the job of, of actually holding people to account and telling the truth. Oh, my gosh. It's so funny because, like, you think about it, you know, they say, oh, it, we, we talk about it in these legal terms like race based admissions. They would like to factor race in is one. What the, what's really happening is these universities are essentially sitting there saying, if we if we get rid of this, all the Asians are going to take up all the spots. Yep. yep. Can I get rid of all those Asians? I don't want all these Asians running around Harvard. That's what's happening. Like, how is that not blatantly racist? How could it possibly stand in 2022? Well, and Harvard, unfortunately, has a long and ugly tradition. You go back to the 40s and 50s, and they had anti-Jewish quotas for the same reason. They said, if we don't put quotas in, too many Jewish people will get in based on academic merit, so let's cap them. It's the same ugly history of racism. I also talk in the book, I talk about the history of critical race theory, which began at Harvard Law School roughly the time I was there. Ketanji Brown Jackson and I were, were both in law school together. She was a year behind me. We we're both in the mm-hmm. law review together. And, and I, I lay out the history of critical race theory But the Democrats embrace. So critical race theory is a Marxist theory, but it's based not on the notion of equality. It's based on what they call equity. And equity means affirmatively embracing racial discrimination, discriminating against whoever is deemed the dominant or or, or oppressive classes. And and so I describe in the book, for example, there was a a Biden judicial nominee, an Asian-American woman who was nominated to the district court. And I asked her a simple question. I said, is racial discrimination wrong? She refused to answer. I asked her three or four times. She refused to answer. Now, the reason she refused to answer is her student note, also written at Harvard. She advocated in favor of discriminating against Asian Americans. Now, mind you, she is Asian American, and she writes how essentially Asian Americans who believe discrimination against them was wrong were not sufficiently woke. Woke was not a term then, but that's basically what she said, that they they have bought into the colonialist oppressive mindset and, and, and they should, in the interest of equity, welcome being discriminated against. Now, that is Step nutty. And, and, and that, unfortunately, is where the Democrat Party is. Yeah. I mean, remember when Serena Williams husband resigned from Reddit, a company I think he founded uh, from its board because he wanted to make room for you know more diverse people. It's like, OK, so that's where we are. Can I tell you this? A friend of mine just sent this to me. For, it's from The New York Post, um, I think on 
Friday. Uh, and I knew about this, but this isn't now in writing and it's spreading. So Brearley, the Brearley school, this is one of the, mm-hmm. those very Tony uh, yep. girls schools, 60 grand a year. But there are at least five schools in New York now doing it. Not only do you have to, if you apply your daughter to Brearley, not only are you told the parents are expected to attend two diversity, equity, inclusion and anti-racism workshops per school year, uh, but you have to write a 500 word essay demonstrating your fealty to those values. And then if your daughter gets in, you're expected to sign a pledge vowing to support this new religion, writes The New York Post. We expect teachers, staff members, parents, everybody to participate in anti-racist training to pursue meaningful change through deliberate and measurable actions. These will include identifying and eliminating policies, practices and the belief that uphold racial inequity in our community. And then it goes on to say, you also must discuss with your child Brearley's mission, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and anti-racist statements in the student handbooks and establishing your family's responsibility to uphold these values. This is crazy. It, it, it really is. And, and it's, it's one of the things I talk about at length in the book is, is critical race theory is a Marxist theory. Marxism coming from the teachings of Karl Marx. It began with believing in an economically deterministic view of the world that divided the world into socioeconomic classes and the haves and have nots. And, and, and the essence of Karl Marx is, is that the bourgeoisie, the owners of capital, um, are inherently oppressing the proletariat, the working man, and, and what they call for is, is, is an overthrow of capitalism and, and replacing it with a communist system. Now, what happened subsequently to that is, is communism failed all across the world and it produced misery and poverty and suffering and death, but it found a home in the Ivy League. It found a home at, at Harvard Law School. When I was at Harvard, Marxism had metastasized into what was called critical legal theory. And it took the same Marxist lens, but it but it broke it into it said the law is all about enabling the owners of capital to oppress the working class. Well, the next mutation of that was was uh, uh, critical race theory, and it uses the same lens. But instead of dividing us up based on on socioeconomic class, it divides us up based on race and critical critical race theory says everything is about race and white people are inherently racist and discriminating against black people and and everything in society should reverse that. And one of the founders of, of critical race theory is this guy, Ibrahim Kendi, who I go through his writings at length, who, who coined the word anti-racism, which is I, I got to give him a shout out for very clever propaganda because, yep. look, anti-racism, how can you not be for that? If you're anti-anti-racism, doesn't that make you pro-racism? Mm-hmm. But what he calls anti-racism is embracing we will discriminate against anyone we view as a, a favored class in society. And and, and Ibram Kendi, by the way, is viciously racist. He, he, he has written so racist. He, he's written, among other things, that, 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 that white people are fundamentally different and they deliberately spread AIDS in the African-American community. He's like accused the, as a whole basis and and the viciousness of it. He, he was the one who tweeted about Amy Coney Barrett adopting black children l- like she was a colonizer and she was trying to impart her white values to I can't remember the insanity yeah. of his tweet. Yes. But that's how he was thinking about Amy Coney Barrett as opposed to somebody, a white woman who didn't s- object to or see the color of these black children, just wanted to give them a good home. He, he's also written that capitalism is inherently racist and and that you have to overthrow capitalism to be anti-racist. These are explicit Marxist and communist, and it is being taught in our schools. It is being taught 
in corporations. What's happening at Brearley, the sad thing is there are schools all across the country. There's a whole business teaching this in schools. And, and the book Justice Corrupted begins with Loudoun County, Virginia. And, and, and you'll remember, your viewers will remember Loudoun County, Virginia. 14-year-old girl goes to school and, and, and she is sexually assaulted in the bathroom, the girl's bathroom, by a boy wearing a skirt. And the school district covers it up, lies about it, insists it didn't happen. In fact, they transfer the boy, the rapist, to another school where he sexually assaults another little girl. This guy was a recidivist. The parents go to the school board in Loudoun County. The dad is, is both parents are understandably upset. And the school board insists this has never happened. No boy dressed in a skirt has ever assaulted anyone. And they had an ideology that mattered more than taking care of the kids in their care. And the father, understandably, is pissed off and says, look, my daughter was raped in your school and you're covering it up. And what happened? They threw him on the ground. They arrested him. They handcuffed him. And subsequently to that, the National Association of School Boards wrote a letter to Biden asking the Department of Justice to target parents as domestic terrorists using the Patriot Act. And six days later, Merrick Garland wrote a memo to the FBI saying, go after moms and dads. And, and if they go to a school board and express unhappiness with sexual assaults, unhappiness with critical race theory, go interrogate them and treat them as suspects. And Megan, they're doing it right now. The Biden FBI is interviewing and targeting parents all across the country. That is an abuse of power. They are? Yes. Yes. No, they've admitted that they're actively, if you're a mom or dad and you go, you go to your school board and you raise concerns, the FBI has gone and interviewed bunches of those folks. Uh, Merrick Garland hasn't backed away from this at all. My goodness. You don't see as many of those reports. Of course, I followed the whole drama and they were doing it at the time. I thought after they got publicly shamed and the the school board group withdrew their letter, uh, he settled down on that. Mm -mm. I mean, Merrick Garland's you you tell me he seems like he's out of control. I I think that's exactly right. I I think Merrick Garland has done more damage to the Department of Justice than any attorney general in history. And and the, the book begins with Richard Nixon. I'm not a fan of Richard Nixon. Richard Nixon tried to do this. He tried to use DOJ and the FBI and the IRS to target his political enemies. And so the first chapter goes into all the details of the corruption. In G. Gordon the, Liddy. Yeah. And I mean, it's it's some weird stuff. I mean, they, they it literally- It is weird. I was reading it like, what? Even I didn't know this stuff. Look, they were giving LSD to people involuntarily, to homeless people. I mean, it's bizarre. Now, what happened by and large is the system mostly worked. The FBI, the DOJ, the IRS resisted Nixon, said, no, we won't be used as a weapon to target our enemies. And Nixon resigned in disgrace. Well, what Nixon tried to do, Barack Obama succeeded in doing. And and he used the machinery of government to go after his political enemies. After Obama, hard partisans burrowed into the senior career positions at DOJ and FBI and the IRS, and it's metastasized under Joe Biden, during Trump, the deep state warred against Trump. And now under Biden, they are shamelessly using it as, as a political enforcement tool for, for the DNC. And, and that is so fundamentally destroying the integrity of DOJ and the FBI. It, it, is, it is an absolute scandal. And, and sadly, the corporate media altogether ignores it. Can that be undone? Yes. Yes. I it definitely can be undone. The first big step is going to be election day. I think we're going to see Republican majorities in both House, the House and Senate. You do. I, I do. I'm, 
in the middle of a 17-state month-long national bus tour. So I'm doing rallies all over the country for candidates for the Senate, candidates for the House. I, I think we're going to see a tidal wave election on the order of magnitude of 2010. Wow. When well, we, how, many, how many seats are the Republicans going to have the Senate by? Um, I think it is anywhere between 50 and 57. If you if you push me to pick a number, wow. I'd probably pick 53 is where I think we'll yeah. end up. 53. What do you think it's going to be? What, Arizona, Nevada? So I think Nevada is the most Nevada is the most likely pickup in the country. I think Adam Laxalt is really strong. I've done a bunch of rallies with him. Uh, I think probably the second most likely pickup uh, is Georgia. I've done a bunch of rallies with Herschel Walker. I'll be with Herschel in a few days doing another rally with him. Um, Those are the two most likely pickups. I'd say the next tier are Arizona and New Hampshire. Um, the public polling has both those candidates down a couple of points, but they're really close. I think both of them, I think both Blake Masters in Arizona and General Bolduck in, in New Hampshire, they both can win and I'm supporting both. The next tier beyond that of pickup opportunities, I would say, is Colorado and even here, here's a dark horse, Washington State. So, I heard about this. This is Smiley, right? Yes. Smiley? Yeah. Look, Washington state is a tough state for Republicans. It's a really yeah. blue state. But but I think Tiffany Smiley, the candidate, is, is a really impressive candidate. Um, and and the polling has her within a couple of points. If it's a really good day, wow. we could end up winning there. And then the rest of the races, like I just did a couple of days ago, three big rallies with J.D. Vance in Ohio. I think J.D.'s going to win. Yeah. Pennsylvania, Dr. Oz, public polling has him down a couple of points, but he was down 10 or 11 points a month ago. So I think we're headed in the right direction. I think Oz has a And the debate's on the 25th. Yeah. We have the debate between those guys on the 25th. Yeah. So I'm I'm feeling very good about the overall dynamic, but you ask, what can we do about the politicization of DOJ and the FBI? One of the first things we can do starting next year is have real oversight hearings, oversight dragging DOJ, dragging the FBI, dragging the administration before the Senate, before the House with subpoenas and holding them accountable for the abuse of power and the politicization. I think that's hugely important. And then the real solution to fix it is we got to win in 24 and appoint leadership at these agencies who Mm -hmm. will clean house and get rid of the partisans who burrowed into and corrupted these institutions. Megan, I hear all the time from prosecutors at DOJ, from agents at the FBI, who are furious. They're frustrated. Look, they're patriots who love America, and they're seeing the institutions they've devoted their lives to fundamentally corrupted. I don't want to see a Republican DOJ. I don't want to see a Democrat DOJ. I want a Department of Justice that follows the law. And and I think that 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 ought to bring us together. Can I ask you about this? at the executive level, if there's a change in, in you know, Democrats, uh, or I should say uh, leaders, Democrat to Republican, how much of that CRT stuff can be undone? He's not going to get to Brearley, right? Yeah. But he could like a lot of this stuff is being done at the federal level and he pushes a new yes. thing every week, it seems, mandating more DEI here or more scholarships there if a school bends on the knee and pushes this stuff on its students. So how much would that change? If we had a Republican president. So I think you can do an enormous amount fighting back against CRT with a Republican president. One of the first things you can do is within the federal workforce. So every federal agency is right now forcing this on federal employees. Uh, it's even worse, tragically, in the military, where where the mm. the military are our service academies. They're they're teaching this garbage on them. Um, you, you look at we had a, a senior general recently put out a directive in the Air Force not to refer to men and women, not to refer to moms and dads. 
I mean, it's just nutty. You know, one of the things I think to understand, this is not even Republican and Democrat or conservative and liberal. That This is sane and insane. I mean, these yep. people can't say what a woman is. That That's just weird. <laughs> yes. you, know, you know, today, Joe Biden came out and said that that that, that he was affirmatively for um, the genital mutilation of children, like 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 having a child who believes he or she is transgender doing a, a surgery that permanently alters that child, that that sterilizes mm -hmm. that child. And, and look, my view is no child has the maturity to make that decision. If, it, if an adult makes that decision, we all have rights to make decisions, even if, if, even if those decisions are, are, are not wise. But, but a child, an 8, 9, 10, 11, 12-year-old, does not have the maturity to make that decision. And the Democrats have decided they are pro-permanent, life-altering mutilation of kids. That is not a mainstream position, to put it mildly. But the Democrat Party is captive to the radicals in in their base on almost every issue. This is uh, we actually have that sound by uh, a trans woman who has been someone who identifies as a trans woman, Dylan Mulvaney, who has been a quote woman for less than a year, was invited to the White House. This is like the third time in three weeks we've yep. covered this Dylan Mulvaney. This person's getting tons of coverage. They were invited to go to the Forbes most powerful women's conference. Then they were featured on the uh, Ulta Beauty uh, discussion on girlhood, which <laughs> this person did not have a girlhood. This, we're losing our minds. Now they get invited to the White House to talk about trans rights. I mean, I guess you're getting a little closer to the mark, but even the trans community might say the person's been trans for two minutes. Yeah. And this is where President Biden made the remarks you're talking about. It's SOT 11. Here it is. Do you think states should have a right to ban gender affirming health care? I don't think any state or anybody should have the right to do that as a moral question and as a legal question. I just think it's wrong. So it should be readily available. And gender, you know, affirming care includes not only cross sex hormones, but potentially surgeries for young, young children. You know, I will say that phrase gender affirming health care is one of the most Orwellian phrases that, mm. that, that, that I think I've ever heard. What mm. are they talking about? They're talking about a little boy, an eight, nine, 10 year old, cutting off his genitals. What are they talking about? They're talking about a little girl removing her uterus, removing her ability to have children because the child, or I think sometimes with the case of kids, the woke parents have decided that that child should be a different gender. And, and you do have some people who identify as transgender and then sometime later they change their mind and, and, and want to go back. And, and listen, if an adult makes a decision for the, for, from the dawn of time, there have been men who wanted to be women and women who wanted to be men. They've historically been a pretty small percentage of, of our society, but, but that has been part of the human condition. Um, adults, I think, have a right to do what they want, but this preaching it to kids is profoundly dangerous, and, and I think it is child abuse. If you cut off your child's genitals, I, I don't care what your political reason for that is. You're making a decision for that kid that the kid is not mature enough to make. And if you're making it, you are not putting the, the well-being of that child as your principal goal. And if the child decides later that he or she would like to have children, the parents, if they've gone down this road, have, have, have taken that choice off of the child's future forever. Mm.
it's deeply disturbing if you don't know what they do to children when they give, you know, teenagers uh, gender affirming care. Look it up because infertility, the inability to ever have an orgasm. These are like the small consequences. Yeah. Once you actually perform surgery, uh, you're talking about changes you can never have back and they're catastrophic. They're yeah. absolutely catastrophic. All right. Stand and, by and, it's because, a, um, and it's a multi-billion dollar business, too. That's one of the that's things the driving it is thing. cash. And, and the kids that, are a casualty of, of the desire for cash. That's right. We saw that at a previously respected mm -hmm. university in the yeah. hospital associated with it, Vanderbilt, thanks to Matt Walsh on The Daily Wire, in a horrific revelation yeah. about how excited they were about how much dough these procedures on kids uh, was going to come into the hospital. All right, stand by because I got to squeeze in a break and we're going to get more on Justice Corrupted. I like the, the title. Justice Corrupted with its author, Senator Ted Cruz. Don't go away. We talked about would, would things change if we had a change in leadership at the top. The current leader has said he would like to remain that leader for another four years. It's getting a little bit more explicit as time goes on. He gave an interview to MSNBC's Jonathan Capehart. And the exchange is making news not just for what he said, but how he said it and how the exchange went. Here it is, Sat 6. I have not made that formal decision, but it's my intention. My intention to run again. And we have time to make that decision. Uh, Dr. Biden is for it. Mr. President. Oh, Dr. Biden thinks that uh, my wife thinks that. Uh, that I uh, that, that we're that we're doing something very important. Oh, boy. What do you make of that? Uh, look, I mean, that was disturbing. Uh, th th there is no doubt that that Joe Biden is dealing with very significant mental deterioration. Uh, when I was elected to the Senate a decade ago, Joe was vice president. He swore me in. I, I know Joe of most of the senators. We all know him. That's not the Joe Biden we knew. Um, it, it is really striking. I'll tell you, Megan, as I travel around the country, you know what the most frequent question I get asked? Hmm. Who's running things? Pe people yeah. ask me that constantly. Who's in charge? Same. And, and the terrifying answer that I give is I have no idea. Um, I can tell you since Biden became president, I have not spoken with him, not once. That is weird. Now, you might say, OK, Cruz, you're a right winger. So fine. He's not talking to you. He's spoken to virtually none of the Republican senators. We sit around at lunch and talk about how, how they're basically hiding him in the basement. They don't have him talk to us. And that is weird. I mean, I, I talk to Obama regularly. I talk to Trump every week, sometimes every day when he was president. It is clear that his mental deterioration has been significant. And, and I got to tell you, I think the odds that Joe Biden runs for reelection are 0.00%. If that is simply not going to happen, he's not up to mm -hmm. it. And we're in the midst of the Democrat primary right now. You can see the, the Democrat contenders. I think the top four contenders are Kamala Harris, Pete Buttigieg, uh, Gavin Newsom, and Elizabeth Warren. And I think the oh, four of man. them are, are like circling around in a knife fight. And every one of them is jabbing each other in the backs, uh, positioning because nobody thinks that, that, that Biden's going to be at the top of the ticket. That's going to be really fun to watch. Um, <laughs> there's an error or um, a wrong word or a wander, you know, unable to find his way off the stage every day. Yeah. And the latest one was I don't know. I think this is a senior moment. Otherwise, it's a blatant lie on whether on how he got student loan debt through. We just had a court say that's not going anywhere. Stand by. No one's don't apply. Like mm -hmm. no one's getting any loans paid off right now. We're going to have this legal challenge play play out. The Eighth Circuit said that while we decide whether this is legal. But here he was talking about 
his efforts to get that passed. All right, SOT 10. You don't have one of those loans. You just get 10,000 written off. It's passed. I got it passed by a vote or two. What is he talking about? He has no idea. Uh, Nothing passed. There hasn't been a vote. Uh, I've been trying to press to get a vote in the Senate. Uh, The Democrats are terrified of a vote on this because they recognize it's it's, it's really bad politics. And, And so a number of Democrats who are on the ballot in November are running away from this because, you know, what Biden did as a, a policy matter uh, is is reverse Robin Hood. You mean, you know, Robin mm-hmm. Hood, of course, took from the rich and gave to the poor. What what the Democrats are doing, what the Biden White House did uh, is is take from working men and women, take from plumbers and electricians and truck drivers and steel workers and blue collar workers across the country who, who may not themselves have gone to college, but he's spending their tax money to, to give a giveaway uh, to affluent college graduates, in many instances, people who are making or are on a path to make a lot more than the blue collar workers who, who they're taking money from. And, and, and I got to tell you, working men and women are pissed. I'll tell you who also is pissed. The millions of people who took loans and worked responsibly and paid them off. Listen, when I went to college, uh, my parents had just filed for bankruptcy. They had a small business in Houston. It was the 1980s and they went bankrupt. We lost our home. We lost everything we had. When I went to college, I was 17. I was financially on my own. I worked two jobs and and had to figure out how to make college work. And so I took a bunch of student loans. I came out of college and law school with about 100 grand in student loans. And it took me nearly 20 years to pay them off. I paid them all off and I worked year after year paying every month. There are millions of people like that who are responsible. and, And Biden through just an executive order, a decree, and, and frankly, one that is lawless, one that I believe the courts will strike down as contrary to federal law, he's trying to buy votes. And, and that's what this is about. Uh, but it's an ironic uh, uh, Freudian slip there, because not only was there not a vote, the reason there wasn't a vote is Chuck Schumer blocked it because he didn't want to put Democrats on record as supporting this reverse Robin Hood screwing blue collar workers, uh, because I think a lot of Democrats realize that that that, that politics is, is not great. But it's so the reason there's a legal challenge in the Eighth Circuit right now is a whole group of states are arguing you can't do this as yep. president. It went beyond your executive powers. If you want to do this, you need Congress to pass a bill that you can then sign into law. And he's he knows that challenge is happening. His administration yep. is fighting against it. And he goes out there to say it's passed. I got it passed by a vote or two. It's completely made up. I mean, we are really in la la land and I'm getting really concerned. Yep. Like if, if it hadn't bounced around the, you know, let's get Trump out of there with the 25th Amendment. I think you'd be hearing more about that. Yeah. L- l- listen, the one thing I would disagree that you said is you said he knows that challenge is out there. I'm, I'm not oh. convinced he knows that. I'm not convinced he has any awareness of it at all. I think they really do hide him. And as you know, I, I do a podcast every week, actually three times a week called Verdict with Ted Cruz. You and I are are, are now doing it, doing the same business. And, and we've been it, it was the number one ranked podcast in the world. And we've done some deep dives into this issue, both on the policy issue, but also on the legal issue. So the Biden administration's justification for this, uh, they issued an opinion from the Office of Legal Counsel, which is an office in the Department of Justice that gives binding opinions for within the executive branch. And, And the claimed basis for the authority to forgive upwards of a trillion dollars in student loans 
was a bill that Congress passed right after 9-11 called the HEROES Act, which gave the Secretary of Education limited authority to forgive student debts for soldiers and sailors and airmen and Marines and their families. So for people who stepped up and said, I'm going to fight against terrorists trying to kill Americans, Congress said, OK, we're going to give some relief to student loans in response to that. What the Biden DOJ said is, well, that statute authorizes Biden to give it away to, to everyone. And, and I got to say, as someone who has practiced law for a lot of years, who's argued in front of the Supreme Court, that statutory case, I literally I read the, the DOJ opinion. I laughed out loud reading it. It, it, it is mm-hmm. so shoddy. You're a lawyer. It's not remotely persuasive. Mm-hmm. Now, I will throw a caveat. There is a real chance the courts will not strike this down. It has nothing to do with the merits. It has to do with standing. If the Supreme Court mm. gets to the merits, I think 6-3, the court will strike this, this down. But the problem is, in order for the court to consider the merits, you have to find a plaintiff who has standing, which means that plaintiff was directly injured by the decision. And, and I talked about at length on, on the Verdict podcast what the challenges are on standing. And it's not clear if the plaintiffs will succeed in getting a court to answer the question. I hope well, that that's they why do. that's why the, the federal district court struck down this challenge, as I understand yep. it. But then it was appealed to the Eighth Circuit Correct. and they said, well, OK, we realize that uh, that the, the district court threw this case out, thus frustrating the five states who are saying this was wrong. Yep. But we're going to stay that order while we take a, a look at it. So it's, you know, it's a temporary hold. Yes. We'll see who prevails because of the standing issue. All right. I have two quick things I want to ask you about sure. before I let you go. And we have to get both of them in. The one is what's what's going on with the Supreme Court leaker. But the second is, so I'll start in reverse order. We got to get to leaker, though. Yep. So quick answer on this one. Why is Raphael Warnock campaigning on you, on his relationship with you? <laughs> Here's the here's just 20 seconds of his ad mentioning you. Things work surprisingly well together. Pizza with pineapple. French fry and frosty. Raphael Warnock and Ted Cruz? That's right. (laughs) Raphael Warnock partnered with Republican Ted Cruz to extend I-14, connecting military communities in Texas and Georgia, which will help create jobs from Columbus to Macon to Augusta. I'm Raphael Warnock, and I'll work with anyone if it means helping Georgia. Yeah, look, you're the pineapple, <laughs> you little pizza pineapple combo. You know, look, I'm a Cuban, Irish, Italian man. I can be pineapple on pizza. That, <laughs> that, that, that works. Maybe a jalapeno, throw that on there, too. Jill Biden would call you the little taco. <laughs> he, he would indeed. <laughs> By the way, there are six Latinas who are Republican nominees for the House who I'm supporting who dubbed themselves the spicy tacos. And I think <laughs> they've all got a good shot at winning. Listen, Warnock, I, I understand he's trying to find a way to get elected in Georgia. It's true. He and I worked together on this bill. The, the, the bill was the Cruz-Warnock bill, and, and we got it passed unanimously. Actually, it was in the middle of the infrastructure bill. I stood up and spoke for it. He stood up and spoke for it. And, and then Tom Carper, the, the, the senator from Delaware, stood up and said, you know, if Cruz and Warnock are both for it, we ought to all pass it unanimously. And the Senate literally broke into applause, and we passed it. And it was good for jobs in Texas and, and all the way to Georgia. At the end of the day, that's not going to get Warnock reelected. The, the reality is Warnock's voting record is wildly out of step with the people of Georgia. And, and I think in November, Georgia is going to elect a Republican. They're going to elect Herschel Walker. I understand why Warnock's trying to find a basis to campaign on. But the rest of his record, I think, is, is really extreme for the people of Georgia. That's fun. It's fun to see. Yeah, most Democrats are like Ted Cruz. So I tip my hat to him for at least showing that he's willing to work across the aisle. But, so, yeah, so, you know, know, Megan, it's actually funny. Uh, three different Democrats running for president in 2020. Cory Booker, Amy Klobuchar, 
um, and uh, Kirsten Gillibrand all on the campaign trail use the same joke. They'd say, heck, I'll, I work with anyone. I even work with Ted Cruz because I've, <laughs> I've worked with all three of them. And it's a good laugh line in Democratic presidential primary. It's a good laugh line. But but n- neither of them went 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 all the way either. They're just making you an even bigger star. Uh, OK, Supreme Court leaker yeah. that we talked about it at length when it happened. What's going on? I don't know that they haven't reported anything. They haven't announced anything. I think they need to bring in federal law enforcement. They need forensics. We need to find this leaker and this leaker needs to be prosecuted. And I'm really disappointed the court has not gotten to the bottom of it yet. They need to. I know. Is there any chance you believe at any level that they know and they just haven't told us? I hope not. I I will say this goes right to the core of the integrity of the court. It's one of the things I talk about in the book, Justice Corrupted, how I was like in two centuries of our nation's history, this has never happened. And and it's Clarence Thomas analogized it to, he said it was like an infidelity in a marriage. There's just no coming back from from the destruction of trust. And and I think it is very important that whoever did this be prosecuted, be disbarred, and and, and spend real time behind bars. Yes, a Supreme Court justice had somebody show up near his house ready to assassinate him. Yes. There have to be consequences. Yes. They cannot let it slide. They cannot keep it private and they cannot let it go unsolved because the Supreme Court marshal wasn't able to get to the bottom of it. Stole the last word. Senator Cruz, always a pleasure. Justice corrupted. I love it. Good luck with it. Thanks. Tomorrow, we are on tape with Robert F. Kennedy Jr. He's back and he's great. But more importantly, there is a new podcast dropping tomorrow. You can go ahead and subscribe today. It's called Dedicated with Doug Brunt. That's my better half, Doug Brunt. My Duggar has got an amazing new pod dropping. He interviews all these great, well-known, beloved authors about their writing process, about their books, behind-the-scenes stuff. Lee Child is on there with some crazy stuff about Jack Reacher. Go subscribe now. And we'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening to The Megyn Kelly Show. No BS, no agenda, and no fear.